And this passage that we're looking at today is so rich and so full. It's Peter's message to everyone who was in Jerusalem at the celebration of Pentecost. Pentecost is called Pentecost because it happens 50 days after Passover. So we're talking about 50 days after the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Last week, we looked at how the church, the early church, was small, about 120 people gathered in a room when God sent his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit indwelled each and every believer, and the the transition was happening away from that particular people, the Jewish people only, and that particular place, the temple in particular at Jerusalem, and the gospel was going to now spread to everyone, everywhere. And that's kind of a cool thing when you think about what we've been doing. We've been kind of kicked out of our normal routine and sense of place. And we've had to be creative. And that has allowed more people to connect with Cornerstone. We have people who are a part of our church now that were not a part of our church before this whole lockdown happened, and they connected first online. So that's kind of a cool thing that we are expanding in our sense of place and including others as well. So today I called the message something like, what to do when you realize that you've got it wrong. Because in this passage, this sermon, this message that the Apostle Peter gives on Pentecost is pretty incredible. It's so deep. There are a couple of different ways that you could go at it. Number one, it's the first presentation of the complete gospel, the story of Jesus Christ from start to finish. It is an incredible confrontation because, talk about upended, he's telling the people that they got Jesus wrong. Not only did they get Jesus wrong, they killed God's son. And in fact, he states that explicitly. So he's very confrontational. It's a total uh, upending. I mean, you probably got it wrong at some point. I bet you've never got it that bad wrong, that badly wrong to crucify, to put to death God's son. And he's telling them that that's exactly what they have done. It's also a pattern for what to do. It shows what to do when you get things wrong. Because at the end of this passage, the apostle Peter is finished and the people respond, what should we do? We've, we've totally blown it. We've been fighting against God when we thought we were fighting for God. So now what do we do? So it's a pattern for how to reset when you get it wrong. But the other thing, and this is the thing that I decided to kind of focus on for today, is that it emphasizes an aspect of the gospel that we usually don't really emphasize. Uh, we're used to talking about Jesus and that he pre-existed, that he is God in the flesh, fully man, fully God. We emphasize that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death that he did not deserve and was resurrected, brought back to life. But there's another step after that that sometimes does not get the emphasis and attention that it deserves. And... This is actually, I think, a key that will help us to be 
united and to overcome some of the differences. And that's been kind of a subtext throughout this series is how did Jesus take a bunch of disciples who were all over the map politically, religiously, theologically, and make them into one unified church? And I think that this aspect of the gospel, which again, we don't emphasize perhaps as often as we should, is actually the key to creating a unified people of God in a setting like ancient Israel, where you had all kinds of competing religious and political philosophies. Uh, not that that has anything to do with our current situation at all, where you might encounter some uh, political and religious diversity, but but just in case anything like that ever happens and you are in the midst of a bunch of people who don't necessarily agree with you, then this might be a helpful tool as well. So let's look at it together. Where I'm going to uh, read you the, the rest of the sermon because we looked at the first part of the sermon last week. And then I'm going to give you a parallel passage from the Gospel of John that I think brings some insight into it. And then we'll pull it all together and talk about how they did a reset. So let's look at it together again. If you have your Bibles, it's Acts chapter 2. If you have the bulletin with the insert, you can follow along in there as well. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 39. All right, how am I going to do this? All right. Let's pray together before we dive into the scriptures. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to gather together. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through your Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures and who is present now, available to everyone who says yes to Jesus, indwelling every single believer in Jesus. I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts and show us exactly what we need to know and what we need to do with what we hear today. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right. I like to hear that in person. That's one of the benefits. All right. Picking up the sermon at chapter 2, verse 22. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, 
and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor at God's right hand, and the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand, until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. So, <clears throat> again, here you have Peter completing the message that he gave, giving the overview, the entirety of the gospel message. And uh, you'll notice that if you're looking at the notes for today, that the key verse that we've been using throughout this series was the command, the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples, which was that you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. And that's exactly what we see going on here. Notice they said that they are the witnesses to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Every single one of them there could have testified to that because they saw him die and they saw him alive after he was raised. And so he is telling them to change their allegiance, that whatever they might have thought about Jesus in the past, that they should now recognize that he is both Lord, he is the one that's in charge, he is the one who is God in the flesh, and he is also Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one that God has put in place as king over all. So the first application to this that I make is that it's good for us to allow for the possibility that we can get it wrong. You would think that if you were there and if you had seen Jesus do all of those miracles, seen him raise people from the dead, heal people blind from birth, for, tell people who had been lame and crippled since birth to get up and walk that you would have no way, no how, missed who Jesus was. But this is a cautionary tale because a great number of people who saw all of those things 
no matter what the evidence that was presented to them, because they were clinging to a particular view, religious or political or a mix of the two, they missed what God was doing and who Jesus was. So if people who are presented with undeniable proof up to and including the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead are able to get Jesus wrong, then it's possible, just possible, that normal everyday people like you and I can get lesser things wrong. And so it's good to approach it from a sense of humility, that we can get it wrong. One of the things that, this is one of the things that has been reinforced to me over the past several months and what we've been dealing with. Everybody is doing their best, I think, and people sometimes get it right, sometimes get it wrong. Our approach to what we've been doing as a church, probably there are things we've gotten right, and there are probably things that we've gotten wrong, but I'm not going to be too quick to judge others because Everybody is doing their best, and everybody is going to get better over time. Everybody is going to be able to look back with the benefit of hindsight at some point. But it's helpful to have a perspective of humility when you're looking at what's going on. So at least allow <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> for the possibility that you and I can get it wrong. And then I, I'll point out just a couple of things that will help you to maybe have a little bit of a warning flag that you might be getting it wrong. And these are taken from the story and as it unfolds in this message. So Peter starts out by telling the people, this is Acts 2.22, God God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. In other words, he's talking to people who would have been personally familiar with Jesus' ministry. They're not taking it on somebody else's word that he was able to heal people. They're not taking it on someone else's word that he was able to feed 5,000 with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. These are experiences that many of these people would have had. It would have happened among them, he says, as you well know. So he makes the point that through these things, and Jesus makes this point as well in the Gospels, that God was publicly endorsing Jesus' ministry. He was saying, yes, this is the guy, this is my guy, follow him through these expressions of signs, wonders, miracles, and ultimately through the resurrection of the dead. So, what's a sign that you're getting it wrong? When God is clearly affirming, now we don't have Jesus walking around doing miracles like this, but there are things that he clearly affirms and supports in the scriptures, and if we find ourselves discounting that, working against that, fighting against something that God has affirmed, then that should be a warning sign. The next warning sign to look out for is in the next verse, the, in verse 23. It, he makes the note, with the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. So the question about uh, the first part of that is, am I collaborating with people who are doing evil? 
if you find yourself working with and collaborating with people who are doing wrong and find that you are being drawn into that, then that should be a warning sign. In the scriptures, it says that those who walk with the wise become wise. In other words, you hang out with wise people, that tends to rub up off on you. But the companion of fools suffers harm. And biblically speaking, a fool is not somebody who's dumb. Uh, a fool is someone who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it. He does wrong anyway. She does wrong anyway. So when you are hanging out with people who are doing wrong, it doesn't say you become foolish. It says you suffer harm. In other words, you just are around when their life blows up and you get caught in the crossfire. You become collateral damage. So that's another warning sign. It should have been a warning sign to them. G Peter is specifically talking about how the leaders of the people were con conspiring and plotting to kill Jesus, but they did not have the legal authority to actually put him to death. So they had to draw the Roman authorities into the picture, and so they found themselves collaborating with and working with people that they would not usually work with because they were considered the enemy. They were the lawless ones. They were the ones that were not doing right. So that's another question to ask myself. Who, who are the people I'm working with? Who are the people I'm collaborating with? Why am I collaborating with these people? And then the second part of the verse says, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. He is telling them very directly, you committed murder. And so the question there is, am I doing something I know is wrong? In extreme circumstances, you can become so committed to a particular point of view or agenda that you begin to rationalize and justify doing things that you know are wrong. And so if you find yourself in that situation, that should be a red flag that you are getting it wrong. And then lastly, and this is a little bit more complicated, but there's a parallel that I see in that other passage that I put there, which is John chapter 11 in the second half of that chapter. Now let me set the stage. This is also in your uh, insert, so you can follow along there. Second, in the first half of John chapter 11 is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so this is one of the culminating miracles in Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, remember, Lazarus was a family friend. He had been uh, dead and buried for several days. Jesus shows up, raises him from the dead, and this was this happened in a town that was just outside of Jerusalem. So it was well known, and obviously the news spread as well. And so this is dealing with the aftermath of that. What happened after Jesus did this publicly well-known miracle? Uh, it says, verse 45, many of the people who were with Mary, Mary, of course, is one of Lazarus' sisters, believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. They see him call a dead person out of the grave. They believe in Jesus. No problem. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Remember, the Pharisees were one of the political and religious parties, uh, uh, sects in that day. 
and they were some of the people who followed Jesus, but most of the time, most of the Pharisees were in opposition to Jesus. They had a different view on what needed to be done and how to cooperate with what was going on. So, verse 47. Then the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling council. They're subject to the Roman rulers, but they have some authority, especially when it comes to religious issues. So they ask themselves, what are we going to do? Now, just pause for just a second and think about that. Jesus, in addition to all the other things he's been saying and doing, has now raised somebody from the dead. And their question is, what do we do about this? Now, I would be thinking, okay, it's very obvious, as Peter would later say, God has put his stamp of approval on this guy. We have got him wrong if we're opposing him. But that's not what they're asking. It says, this man certainly performs many miraculous signs. This is a, this is a good thing to note, that even Jesus' contemporaries who were opposed to him, who had eventually put him to death, did not deny that he was able to do miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. And to me, this is the key phrase in this whole thing because it gives you an insight into what their mindset was. It was not, okay, what is God doing? Is Jesus who he says he is because he's able to do the things that he said he would do and he's done this incredible miracle? They were so invested in, we have to protect our place and our nation. In particular, the temple, which we've talked about in previous weeks, how central to their identity that place was. That we, we cannot lose our place and we cannot lose our people. So no matter what happens, no matter what Jesus does, no matter who he says he is, no matter how many times God affirms that, we can't give in, we can't play along because we are so connected and committed to this place, and our people. Really ironic because what Jesus was going to do was spread the people of God out of that place to everywhere and out of that one particular nation to people everywhere. And despite all of their efforts within a lifetime, that temple would be destroyed and not a single stone would be left on top of the other just as Jesus predicted. So, then, picking up the story, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest at that time, said, You don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Now, this is really, this is just amazing stuff, too, because what he's saying there is they're kind of in this quandary. What do we do with him you know, if we just don't do anything, then all the people are going to follow him. He's doing all these incredible miracles. What should we do? And Caiaphas is saying, what are you, dumb? Kill him. That's literal. That's, that's the point of what he's saying. It's not, why are you having this moral quandary? We need to put him to death 
because if he keeps on going, then we're going to lose our position and our place. In other words, I'm so committed to this place and this people, my perspective, religious and politically, I don't care what God is doing. We have to kill this guy. So, then John makes an interesting point. Because the way Caiaphas said it was it'd be better for one man to die so that our whole nation doesn't die. But that's the point he's making. But he says it's better that one man should die for the people. And it brings in the central idea of the gospel that Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for everyone. And so he makes the point, John, the writer, says he did not say this on his own as high priest at that time. He was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. And not only that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. So he's saying even though he was had an evil intent, God used him as high priest to prophesy about what Jesus would do. And then, just so that it's clear what he was meaning, verse 53, so from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. Now, in the midst of that story, here, and this, this is more nuanced, this is probably the hardest point to make in all of this, how did the religious leaders of Jesus' day get it wrong? And I put on in the notes the question to ask yourself is, am I trying to play God? In other words, they thought that protecting their place and their people was the absolute most important value. And in the process, they allowed themselves, they fell into idolatry because they were giving worship and ultimate allegiance to something that was other than God and God's anointed son, Jesus Christ. They said, our ultimate value is protecting this place and our people. No matter what happens, we're going to protect this place and our people. Whose job was it to protect that place and those people? Ultimately, it was God's. That was God's responsibility, and they should have been looking to God for protection, provision, direction, guidance. But instead, they were so committed to their particular agenda and their understanding that they couldn't distinguish, and they got confused and ultimately, they tried to accomplish what was ultimately God's role, which is if the temple, so the supposed house of God, needed protecting, God would take care of that. What are the chances that God needed their help to make sure that the people of God kept going? Zero, right? That was God's responsibility. So any time that we feel like we have to do something, take some step, 
in order to do God's job for him, because we're not sure that he will take care of things, we are playing God, and that is an opportunity for us to get way, way off track. So, we allow ourselves the possibility that we can get it wrong. We ask ourselves, am I fighting against something God has affirmed? Am I collaborating with people who are doing evil? Am I doing something that I know is wrong? And am I trying to play God? Now, when the people heard this message, they heard lastly and foremost that now, verse 13, I'm sorry, 33, He, Jesus, is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven, at God's right hand. In other words, our ultimate allegiance belongs to Jesus. You, people who are gathered in Jerusalem, you have put your allegiance, your trust in something else or someone else, but it wasn't Jesus because you collaborated with the lawless Gentiles and you killed him You put him to death. And that, to me, is the key that I hinted at at the beginning. In order for us to maintain our our unity, our ultimate allegiance has to be fully and wholly and exclusively in Jesus Christ. Now, there's no one sitting in church or sitting on a lawn today or watching online that is going to get confused about that. Oh, I thought I was supposed to be committed to my political party before Jesus. Nobody's going to say that. Or I thought I, you know, I grew up in this religious tradition and you're saying something that's a little bit different than that. I should stick to my religious tradition instead of what God says. Nobody says that. But we have to allow for the possibility that we can get it wrong and be open to conviction because If the disciples who became apostles had not made that shift, they would have splintered and split apart because there were at least three or four different religious and political parties and traditions that were represented in the disciples. So how did they become a unified body? It's because they gave their ultimate allegiance and were willing to sacrifice all those other allegiances They gave their ultimate allegiance to Jesus and welcomed everyone else who did the same. And that ultimate allegiance to Jesus is what unified them and made them into a cohesive whole. So it says that when the the people heard what they had done, that Jesus is now the exalted one who deserves our ultimate allegiance And they recognized that they had not done that. In fact, they had murdered him. It says they were pierced to the heart. They were, it's hard to communicate the strength of that phrase in the original language. They were devastated. They were destroyed. They were completely undone by what they were hearing. They were convicted and cut to the core. And I just want to make a side note that I, I noticed, noted in the online version of this message. I hate getting convicted. I just hate it. Because that means I got it wrong. It means that I got to probably go and make things right with somebody. I just hate it when I get convicted by God that I've got it wrong. 
But you know what else? I'm very thankful for it as well. Conviction is a gift. It is a gift. Because there are people who can do wrong and do harm and destroy lives and never have it be even a blip on their conscience. So, <clears throat> I have learned to, even though I hate some aspects of conviction, to embrace it and to try to have that my perspective whenever God shows me when I'm off track, because that's a gift that he does not give to everyone else. So when you feel convicted, if you have that little twinge of guilt, if there's a little red flag that pops up, pay attention to that tension. It's a gift, and it's an a invitation from God to reset and get on the right path. And that's exactly what the people did. So I'll close out with their prescription, what they did, and it will suggest some things that we should do. The first thing that happens is they're convicted, and then they turn to Peter and the apostles and they say, okay, we have blown it. We have totally missed the boat. What do we need to do to make things right? So Peter replied, Acts 2.38, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Uh, repentance is, uh, has a kind of a religious connotation, but it's simply, a, a simple way to understand it is it's a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. They had viewed Jesus a certain way, now they understand him a different way, and that's going to change the way that they act going forward. Uh, it is turning from my own way and my own agenda and turning to and submitting to God's way and God's agenda. So he tells them that they must repent. They need to change direction. They've been fighting against God's anointed. They've been giving their allegiance to something or someone else than the one that God has placed in the position, uh, right hand of God, ultimate place of authority, ultimate uh, object of our allegiance. So changing direction. What does that look like for us? Uh, it may mean, okay, I, I, I realize I need to make, I, I encouraged you in the past weeks to make your story all about Jesus. Uh, what were they were to bear witness to? About me. Focusing on Jesus. Making sure that our allegiance is to him first and foremost. Not letting the waters get muddied. If some of these questions brought up a red flag, it means addressing that and changing your approach however you see fit and however God leads you. But it means changing direction. You're going to move in a different direction. Secondly, it's addressing the past. I get this from where he prescribes, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm sure you can imagine that they would have felt tremendous guilt for what they have done. So the question becomes, how do we get past that? How, how do we make this right? And he says, when you follow Jesus, you are baptized. That's your first step of obedience. And your sins are forgiven. That's how it's taken care of. That's how you personalize what Jesus did on the cross to yourself. You say yes to Jesus. You follow him in baptism. 
it paints that picture of that you were dead and buried. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has raised you to life. He has given you new life. The water uh, symbolizes the washing away of our guilt and sin, forgiveness. And so it's addressing the past. What does that mean for us? If we recognize that we have given allegiance and we've, uh, we have uh, missed the boat in some way, it may mean going back and making things right with some people. It may mean apologizing for your approach in the past. It may mean saying, you know, I, I made this the ultimate value instead of Jesus being the ultimate value and I need, to for, I need some forgiveness. I need to make things right with some people. There are a variety of ways, but it might include repentance, reconciliation, making restitution, addressing the past. And then going forward, do differently in the future. And I get this from when it says, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, comes and resides in every believer in Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have said yes to him as your Lord and Savior, he gets to call the shots, his cross counts for you, then the Holy Spirit is living and residing in you. And there are two primary benefits that I'll highlight. One is he changes your desires. According to the scriptures, he puts in you both the, the will and the ability to do God's desires. So he changes your want to. That's number one. And secondly, he gives you the power to do what God wants you to do. So you want to do what God wants you to do, and now you have the power to do what God wants you to do. This addresses the future. How am I going to go forward in a different way? How am I going to know the right approach? How am I going to maintain that ultimate allegiance to Jesus? Well, God's Holy Spirit is going to walk alongside you, informing your decisions, leading you, helping you to want the right things, and then empowering you to do the right thing as well. So we change direction, we address the past, and then we do differently going forward. This is the time where I'm going to give you an opportunity to, for perhaps for the first time, to declare your ultimate allegiance to Jesus. He's going to come before anyone or anything in the world. That's what it means to follow Jesus, and that's that missing piece that we sometimes don't emphasize in the gospel, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. He is enthroned, exalted at the right hand of God. And when we say yes to Jesus, we're just doing the right thing because God has placed him in that ultimate position of authority. So, if you have never acknowledged Jesus as the rightful, ruling, reigning king the one who gets to call the shots and has every right to in your life, today is the day to say yes to Jesus. Again, you're saying yes to his lordship, that he's the boss, and you're saying yes to his forgiveness, that what he did on the cross is going to count for you. Now, 
when a person does that for the first time, they symbolize that and formalize it through baptism. So that will be your next step. Once a person has crossed the line of faith and said yes to Jesus, we celebrate and remember that through communion. And that's what we're going to do now. So 